Episode 18, everyone. Welcome back to Two Nobodies. I have a very special guest. Kyle's not here this week, but I have a very special guest in Galad Cohen. Galad, it's my pleasure and honor to have just like an old friend on my podcast. I've been watching you from afar, and I'm just so privileged to have you on our podcast. Welcome to Two Nobodies. Thank you so uh, so much for having me. I'm equally uh, just so happy to be here. We were saying, you know, right before you hit the record button, how we, we go back all the way to grade three, which officially makes you my oldest uh, oldest friend, uh, which is which is awesome. And I'm also I'm number eighteen. That is great. Like in in, uh, in Judaism, eighteen is actually uh, a good luck number. Like my wife and I purposely got married in 2018 because uh, eighteen is so meaningful. It, it represents life. Um, Isn't that that's crazy, like how the world, so do you believe in that sort of thing? Like that kind of like just determinism <laughs> or like that, what's your, like, are you that like kind of law of attraction kind of person or do you like that, are you more of that predeterminism kind of person? Like where are you at with that? I guess it, it depends on, on, on what day you catch me on, let's just say. There's days where I, okay. I totally believe in that stuff. You know, my grandma, I, we're going to go on a tangent here, but my grandma's a psychic. She's been a psychic since uh, I did not since know forever. that. Yeah, she, okay. she, she, she does these coffee readings and I don't believe in psychics. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. But when I describe my grandma being a psychic, I believe in that. So I, I guess like when it's convenient for mm. me to, to believe in these things, I do. But 18, you, I'm here today. I, I, I believe in that. Have you, have you ever had like a, a reading done or something that was just, just bang on and you're just, and you're just kind of dumbfounded with how somebody knows that kind of information or just never even pursued that because you just think it's junk? The only time actually was with, uh, with, was with my grandma. Um, and it was when I was 16 years old. And she usually refuses to do any of this for family. Um, like my wife and I, we, we visited my grandma a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, read, read Britta's coffee. Um, and, and she wouldn't do it. Um, she just refuses. But when, when she did it for me when I was 16, the way it works is, is you drink Turkish coffee uh, as you know, as you may know with Turkish coffee, like the suds are still in the cup. And so when you're done sipping it, you're left with a mug full of these like coffee grinds. And so she kind of mm. swirls it around in the mug, puts the mug upside down. And then the, the grinds like form an image, uh, inside the mug that she's able to what? read. Yeah. And so, uh, she was reading my mug. And the only thing I remember from this thing, again, this was when I was 16. So like 20, 20 years ago, she, she saw the letters AGR, um, and then two weeks later, I met this this girl, Amanda Jillian Rafeman in high school, who, who became <laughs> my first ever girlfriend, which was really crazy. And so she saw that um, and picked up on it. But she also sometimes sees, you know, um, scary things. Like she's able, she's been able to to catch cancer, for example, in in people before they they were aware. And thankfully, they were able to go to the doctor and get diagnosed, and and they caught it. But she's also sometimes able to see things sadly when it might be too late um she sees all kinds of things but mm. um it was an experience for sure i definitely remember that i think there's some people who just have a certain i don't know a certain energy my dad would always say that uh those people who don't really advertise themselves or just like you said like your grandma said she doesn't want to do anything with family right like just kind of 
um, they have this energy, they're able to sort of tell something, but they don't over the top promote themselves. They're not seeking to do readings or whatever. My dad has found, like he was very much into this stuff. The people who kind of, he felt like were very sort of accurate with things um, were just people who, again, didn't want the attention, who actually didn't even want to do the readings. Um, so I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. My grandma's not that way. Like anyone who's met my grandma knows she's loud. She's loud in the way she dresses <laughs> and the way she acts. She wears like leopard print. She's like 80 something years old. She still smacks, uh, smokes, excuse me, two packs of cigarettes a day. Very vocal, lives on her own. Like she, she's the type of lady that uh, will like lift up the couch, like get down on her hands and knees at the age of 84 and like lift up the couch to, to get like a dust from underneath it. Um, yeah. She's full of life. But I think for her, it comes, it comes, I think, from wanting to protect herself or possibly us in case she saw something bad. Um, mm. Maybe that she's trying to shield herself from that. But yeah, interesting. Look, I had no idea we'd even be talking about this today. This is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, is yeah, it just, it just dawned on me. I thought that was pretty interesting. I do remember, just to give context to people, like Glad and I, like he said, grade three, we saw each other almost every day. I don't know if you remember that. I remember that fondly, uh, like coming over to your house and we'd be playing in the park, playing baseball, playing catch or whatever. From like grade three to grade five, it was almost every single day. And then, you know, sleepovers, all that stuff. Like this this guy was my, he was my guy, you know, like for, for a number of years. And then you kind of just drift apart. So it just, it's always heartwarming when you can kind of connect back with somebody and, um, you know, just kind of see where the conversation goes. But I'm just, again, so thankful, thankful you came over. I was telling, I was telling my wife, Michelle, I said, <laughs> a simple but very fond memory as well, and you brought up your grandmother, is every time I would come over, she would give me a full-size Kit Kat bar. And my, <laughs> my wife was just like, a full-size one? Like, like, that's wild. Like, nobody gets the full-size Kit Kat bars. I was like, I know, that's why I went there every day, like, was to get these Kit Kat bars, right? Like, that's uh yeah. that's crazy currency even that's like a hundred dollar bill when you're in grade three is a full-size oh, kick app bar for sure um, for sure but you know you 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 reconnected with me about a month ago um i think on twitter or linkedin i can't really remember yeah. but it, yeah. it really made me reflect on our friendship and some of those memories that you know are popping up with with you similar they, they did similarly with me as well like i remember your house very well I remember mm -hmm. that we would hang out in the basement. I remember exactly where that TV was and how the couch was right across <laughs> from it, right up yeah. against the wall. I remember you had this big backyard and your parents, I think it was both your mom and dad were really into gardening and growing oh, vegetables yeah. And, yeah. and herbs yeah. in their backyard. And that was the first time I'd ever seen that. And I actually really reflected on how you were really the first uh, like non-white friend, like racialized friend um, I ever had. Um, and really? I was exposed to, yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, I mean, there were other people we grew up with, but you were definitely the closest. Like I spent time in your house. I was like an extension in many ways of your family and you were an extension of ours. And so I was mm. through you exposed to new culture and, uh, just a, a different way. Um, which I'm also really, really thankful for because, um, I mean, at that age, uh, it's important to be around, uh, different mm. people and different perspectives. And, um, yeah, Yours represented a very first uh, in my life, for sure. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, you were at my birthday parties, and there were, like, East Indian birthday parties. And yep. I don't even know. Maybe I'm sure my mom made Indian food for birthday parties, and I was probably like, oh, God, like, we should be serving them <laughs> pizza. Like, this is not working out. Yeah. Oh, good times. We, um, we both... We both experienced that though. Um, you know, like I, I actually struggle a lot because I, 
you know, obviously your podcast listeners, I don't think this is video. They can't see me, but I'm, I have white skin. Oh, it is video. It's going oh, on it YouTube, video. buddy. Oh, yeah. it is. Okay, great. great. Sorry, I should have um, told you that, but you look great. Thank you. Hey, listen, <laughs> uh, I, we did an hour of makeup before I jumped on here or something. Um, but obviously, like, I, I, I look white. I am white. I sometimes struggle with this whiteness also because I'm, I'm also from the Middle East. I'm Jewish. I, I experience mm-hmm. life in different ways. And so we... We immigrated to Canada when I was a year and a half old. I wasn't born here. Um, and mm. similar to you, like, you know, I, I would go to school and I'd be like, damn it, mom, like, stop giving me falafel and hummus. I just want, like, the cheese sandwich. Like, I want the, like, Dunkaroos, not this bag yeah. of, like, stinky yeah. olives or pickles. And so, <laughs> similar to you, like, I think I was um, trying to whitewash uh, my family uh, and trying yeah, to whitewash yeah. my experience growing up to try to blend in. I would even like bastardize my own name. Like Gilad is how you say it. And mm-hmm. I would really just accept however way anybody said it, no matter how wrong they said it. I, I would say things like Glad, Glad. And my mom was always like, that's not your name. It's not Glad. What is Glad? And it was, it was mm-hmm. I guess, my way of trying to blend in uh, and not try to stand out too differently. I never, see, I never even, I never, that never even crossed my mind that you were probably going through somewhat of a similar struggle. Because, I mean, the school that we went to was largely Jewish, and you were just, you're a white guy. And so I was like, oh, this guy fits in naturally. Like, for me, there was there were very few, you know, minorities in our school growing up. And so I, didn't, I definitely felt sort of... Um, outcasted or felt that sort of bit of pressure not sort of wanting to show off my culture and that took a while to kind of kind of work through you know um and i almost feel like i was just gonna say i almost feel like you know folks who like newcomers who come to canada today like i don't know if they have to face that sort of similar there's probably some challenges and i'd be curious to i mean because you you talk to a lot a lot of interesting people um but i i can't imagine it's almost maybe the same kind of challenges or you don't have to necessarily hide your culture as much. Like there's a more, there's a greater willingness and tolerance in our society, but of course there's still a lot of challenges. So, Yeah, I think, I mean, it really depends. I mean, we work with, uh, for example, a number of years ago, we did a project with a number of um, Muslim youth, refugees who had just Mm. gotten here from Syria. Uh, And I'll dive deeper into like what we do uh, for work and all that. But um, it was also at, at a time when Islamophobia was skyrocketing, and mm. uh, that part of themselves, I think, was, at least for some of the youth we worked with, was a piece that they wanted to hide, um, unfortunately. And, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting reflecting on all this to me, because you and I, uh, we, we started this uh, conversation by saying we were we were pretty much inseparable, and we were over at each other's houses. And meanwhile, both of us were going through very similar things. Uh, in terms of trying to like soften uh, our experiences, uh, our cultural, let's say, experiences. Um, and yet we, we never talked about it until now, uh, well into our 30s. And, and maybe it's because we didn't know, uh, at least for myself, I reflect on it. I don't think I knew I was going through that. Um, mm. I don't think there was any cultural awareness that people were generally going uh, through something like that. Maybe there wasn't language. Uh, to describe the, the the things we were feeling, but I was very aware of the fact that, you know, I didn't speak English at home. I was embarrassed when we brought friends over, and I'd have to speak in Romanian or Hebrew with my family in front of other people. So I still sometimes carry that shame uh, mm-hmm. with myself even at this age. So, um, just interesting to reflect on. I guess on us unpacking that together, like yeah. Twenty twenty something years later. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at your. I was looking at your website. You've got some cool pictures. Is that is that your photography? Like. You've taken those yeah. things? 
Yes. When did yes, that yes, happen? Like, when did you get into photography? Uh, years ago, like around, probably around 2014. Um, I actually got into photography totally by accident. It was like meant to, it was, it was meant to help me cope with something. So I was in a, in a long-term relationship. Uh, I had gotten out of that relationship sometime around 2012, I think. And I was with this person for very long, a very long time. We were together for, for seven years, like all throughout mm -hmm. university and right into adulthood. Um, and so much of myself I had, like so much of how I saw myself and related to the world was through this individual. And so when we mm -hmm. broke up, um, I went to a dark place. Uh, mm. I was I was depressed. I was anxious. Um, definitely in a in a place where I was trying to find myself. And one day I, I was on this like blog to uh, article, or maybe it was now magazine or something. But they were featuring uh, really beautiful photography uh, of Toronto, like these beautiful cityscapes of the city. And I was just really blown away. It just made Toronto look iconic. And at the bottom of the article, it said, um, "Surprise! This was all taken with an iPhone." And for me, the reason that blew me away was because I had that technology in my pocket. So I thought, wow, mm. like maybe I could do this. And so I started walking around Toronto um, trying to emulate this photographer. And of course, maybe not of course, I mean, everyone who starts with art, some people start in different places. But for me, I thought like my art was obviously lacking and it didn't compare to this, this, this other person's photography. But I started to notice over time, interestingly enough, as my photography was getting better, um, I also started to feel better. Uh, I was starting to get over my depression, my anxiety, and I, I later learned that, that the reason why was because I was focusing my energy on something positive, on being creative, on trying to express myself, maybe not necessarily with words, which is something I was struggling with at that time, but mm -hmm. maybe through art. Um, and it was very therapeutic. And what I love about photography in general is you really have to be in the moment. You have to be very present. You have to focus on like how light is casting onto a building right. where the sun right. is shining from the things that are happening around you. And so it separates you from your grief, uh, that you may be experiencing and centers you in the now, which is very meditative and, and mm. all that. And so I just stuck with it. I stuck with it. Like I, I hold photography very near and dear. It's like a medicine to me in a weird way. Um, so you still do it. Yeah, for sure. Th those photos you see on my website, um, probably from like a month or two ago. So still, yeah, still, yeah. here and there where I can. Have you, have you, did you try film at all or was it all digital? Uh, it's all digital. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Haven't, have, I have a film camera laying around. I'm just terrified yeah. to pick that thing up. Um, I'm also very, uh, I can get carried away, let's say with my interests. Uh, if I go camping once, all of a sudden, you know, the next day I'll go and spend $1,500 on camping equipment and become a pro <laughs> camper. I, I don't even want to open up that film camera world because uh, I've invested so much into digital. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, tell me, like, sort of what happened sort of post high school and sort of kind of getting to now. Because uh, I know I know you went to Laurier. And mm -hmm. for people who don't know where Laurier is, that's in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. I'm from the University of Waterloo. But, you know, no no competition. But that's uh, just what it is. Um, but yeah, I know you went to Laurier, but I actually don't know really kind of what happened after. Like I know, I know, sort of having obviously kind of read up on you and and North Korea and all that. But maybe if you don't mind, sort of just talking about that. Yeah. So uh, definitely shout out Laurier and, and 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 shout out Waterloo. You guys definitely had the brains, but we had the the Vanier Cups and the athletics. Um, oh, for sure. That yeah. was sort of the divide there. Um, 
but I went to school for uh, communications uh, and and psychology. Um, my my big ambition, like e- even when I was growing up, was was to get into into TV, uh, radio, and TV. I was like hell bent on on becoming famous. I don't even know. Can famous I, can I stop you for a second on that mm-hmm. one? Because I swear I do remember you telling me this. I'm not even lying when you say that because I do remember us actually having a conversation and you were saying kind of like, hey, what do you want to do? Like this was like kind of early high school. And I do remember you saying about being famous. I, <laughs> I, I, I swear to you that is not. So when you're saying this right now, I'm like, that is a thing. I remember yeah. this about you. Uh, that's hilarious because I wonder if you're the only person I, I ever told. Because now I'm thinking back, I'm like, that's such a shallow thing to want to be when you grow up. Um, but I just wanted to, I wanted to be out there. I wanted to be uh, like present in some sort of way. And so for me, I think I was expressing that through wanting to be on radio uh, or TV. Um, my grandma, going back to my grandma, who, who I love, obviously, uh, would always say, you, you can be one day Endelson Kupel. Uh, which, which I, I, I guess I went to Laurier to try to become Anderson Cooper, the, the CNN anchor. And, uh, I realized when I went to school, actually, that I probably went to the wrong school, um, for what I wanted to, to, uh, to learn. Um, I, I think what I, I maybe needed was more hands-on training. Uh, as you know, mm-hmm. university can sometimes be very theoretical. And I was also in this really weird place. Uh, I'm going to go on a quick tangent here if you don't mind, but oh. I, I went to school probably at the worst time you could go to school to study communications because social media was not a thing. Social media completely changed the way we mm-hmm. interact with the world. Uh, it also changed the education you receive. And when I graduated in 07, it was right around the exact same time that yeah. Facebook and Twitter and all these things started popping up into the world. And so my education quickly uh, felt like it became obsolete. And so... Um, I graduated from school and I had no idea um, what I would be doing uh, with my life. And so um, I followed my partner. I followed my partner who I was with in university. She had a plan to to go to Korea and teach English. Mm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it was the top thing on my list of things I wanted to do at the time. But I thought, you know, um, why not? Why not go there? Why not take a year to sort of like figure out what I want to do with my life? And hey, who knows? Maybe uh, somewhere on this trip, I'll discover something about myself that I didn't know. So uh, I had you had exposure to Korean culture before or this was just brand new or Thomas Cook was my only exposure. Oh, come on. To oh, Korean my goodness. <laughs> that's another goodness. another that's throwback a throwback for everyone. Yeah, that's a throwback friend. Yeah. OK, crazy. Yeah, yeah. none, none at all. Um, Sadly, or, or, or not sadly, no, uh, but I didn't. And so it was, which was also great. I mean, it, it was, I, I really appreciated being able to go somewhere that was wildly different. And so we ended up settling on this uh, school uh, we, called uh, ECC. Uh, and it was in a town called Masan, which is like mm. the Alabama of South Korea. It was deep in the South, like very conservative population there. But the thing that was probably the most jarring, and I didn't know about this, was that there was... Uh, a tiny foreigner population. So the moment we got there, I was othered immediately. Like I stood out. What do you like mean by s- othered? Okay. Like, okay. I see. Yeah. Like I just stood out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And so, yeah. uh, which was like, led to hilarious experiences. Um, and it's also important, I think, because, you know, we started this conversation earlier with me being white and presenting white, which brings a ton of privilege, but having that kind of stripped away from you, uh, and feeling like, uh, a vi- now you're the visible minority mm-hmm. and you don't know mm-hmm. the language was really humbling. And so um, 
It led to hilarious experiences. For example, one, I would be uh, standing there waiting for the bus to come, and an elderly woman would be sitting next to me just staring at me. Like I was a, like I was like some gorilla that like learned how to put on clothes and wow look at this gorilla who like managed to find the bus station yeah. and and wait for the bus and then she started petting my arms um, because I have hair on my arms and most Korean people I guess don't and she was just really fascinated by who I was and even um, another another real quick story that I laugh at sometimes is. Um, in Korean culture, they have these things called jimjilbangs, which are, are bathhouses. And they're very different. Obviously, we don't have these here in Canada. You go there, men uh, and women, they go into separate rooms. Uh, mm. And then you completely strip naked. All of your clothes are off. And you're just walking okay. around this like huge bathhouse with other men uh, naked. And so I have some tattoos. I also have, you know, chest hair. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I look very different. And I would be standing there in the mirror kind of like, you know, bathing myself and through the mirror, I can see all these Korean people staring at me <laughs> and I would then turn around and no one is staring at me. Like they would all just like quickly turn away. And then I'd look, go back to looking in the mirror again. It was like this magic evil mirror. And again, they would start looking at me again when I turned my back to them. But it was a very, um, let's say bizarre, but humbling um, experience. And it wasn't all, all negative. I, I learned a ton about myself in Korea. I had a, a wonderful yeah. time teaching young people. And of course it led to, to uh, it helped lead to, to what I'm doing today for a living. It's interesting because like whenever the times I've been to India, I stick out like a sore thumb. Like if you're someone who is from Canada or the United States or just not born, they know that. And so they will stare and look at you and, you know, one day I'll be taking my wife who, you know, is white and, and she's just kind of a little bit terrified of what's going to happen to her because there'll be stares and Indian people do not turn around. Like they'll continue staring at you. Like, I feel like there's a, like a little bit of like that shame kind of uh, culture and Asian culture sometimes. So I mm. can see that. I can see that playing out. Um, cause I have some Korean friends too, but Indian people, they just, they'll just continue looking at you, man. <laughs> yeah. Which would obviously make for an uncomfortable experience yeah. no matter what. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely follow up with me after you do that trip. I hope, you know, obviously I'm paying attention to the news with what's happening in India with COVID and it's yeah. absolutely terrifying. Um, I hope and pray that that stabilizes um, so you can uh, take Michelle uh, on that uh, it's been It's been so sad. Like my my grandmother, she uh, lost both of her siblings in the last, uh, in the last month. And, you know, you know, she's about 93. And so she lost like her younger sister and her older brother and just you know, to COVID and it's just, it's so sad. Just people are not getting oxygen over there and it's, everyone gets cremated, right? So the crematoriums are maxed out and it's, um, it's a dire situation for sure. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really yeah. heartbreaking. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sad to see. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, she's like now the last one in her family in her nineties. And it's like, you know, she lived a, she lived a life and she's seen a lot of tragedies and a lot of great things. But it, it's, I, I kind of wonder what she's feeling like, like, you know, at that age, like I'm the last one left, right? Like out of six siblings, you know? So. Wow. That mirrors exactly my, uh, my grandma. I mean, she's not, she's, she's a little younger. She's 84, but she yeah. was one, one of six siblings as well. I had that thought the other day, actually, uh, about my grandma too, what it must feel like to be the last one standing and to have that memory mm -hmm. of all these other people that used to be around you. Does your grandma live, uh, in India or in Canada? She came, she, luckily she came to Canada, uh, just, uh, when she, 
anyway, she came just in time, essentially, before everything kind of ramped up over there. So she got vaccinated, which is great. And But, you know, she wants to go back. Like, India's her home, and, and she misses it. She's isolated right now, and it's really, really tough. And over there, when she was kind of in the villages of India, where there's a lot of socialization, and so she misses that. But it's just not a good situation for her either, so... Yeah. yeah, thank goodness. I mean, she's here. It is, I, I can't imagine. It's it's terrifying. Absolutely yeah. terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting. That sort of uh, talk about that just standing out. I just wanted to sort of reflect that back, but continue. Like, so, so you're ex- you experienced this, that funny bathhouse story, but just like sticking out like a sore thumb and just culture shock and, and then sort of what happened? Like, what, what, like so you teach in english and then i know at some point north korea kind of came into play like tell, tell us about that yeah so the year the year is 2007 um i was there from 07 to 08 um i think in june of 08 it was like three months before my contract in korea was over i was really excited to be going back home it, I, I sort of went through a huge honeymoon phase with south korea where i loved it at the beginning everything was an adventure mm. going to the grocery store was an adventure like everything was brand new but I started to reach a place where I was really starting to miss my family and my friends. And um, I, I was kind of reaching this like really toxic place where I was, I was actually blaming Korea, like an entire country, like looking back mm. now and how immature it was. But I was blaming this entire country for all the terrible things that I was experiencing. And it wasn't until years later, now that I actually reflect on my time in Korea uh, and, and think about what a wonderful place it was and um, how anyone I interacted with in South Korea always would take me in and, and, and treat me with such respect. But... It's it's June uh, 2008, um, and there's this opportunity to take a day trip into North Korea from South Korea, uh, which at the time I learned was was really rare. Mm. Um, the relationship between South and North Korea was, was like uh, thawing a little bit, so you could take these very, 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 very organized trips um, across the DMZ uh, into North mm. Korea. And so I signed up to do that trip, um, not because I had a thirst to learn about North Korea, um, not because I, I had anything to do with human rights, let's say. Uh, it was more just an opportunity to, to, to go somewhere where nobody uh, gets to go. I was, I was from, from the very little I knew about North Korea, which basically came from Team America uh, and, and, and how they portrayed Kim Jong-il. Yeah. Um, the, one, the other thing I didn't know was that this was a very secluded country. And so I signed up for this trip and it was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. Um, we were on this So a little, little, little fear then. You were like, you just wanted to go to this place that not really many people have gone to, didn't know much about it. So fear wasn't really a thing. Would that be accurate or? Yeah, it was like one of those like situations where my ignorance maybe played into um, mm. eliminating some of those fears. Because knowing now what I know about North Korea, um, I don't know, I, I probably wouldn't have gone, um, knowing what I know, but uh, for a few reasons, like from a moral perspective and a fear-based perspective, for sure, but the, the trip was very bizarre. So there were these tour buses, we were on the first tour bus at the very front, and uh, we get on this bus, and at, in front of our bus is actually a South Korean military jeep uh, with South Korean uh, soldiers. Uh, we cross the DMZ, um, the South Korean Jeep is kind of idling there where like, there's all this tension, what's happening? Why are we frozen here? And mm. then they kind of do a U-turn and disappear. And we're like, mm. what the hell is this trip canceled? What are we doing? You don't, then, you don't know that this is going to happen. 
I don't know anything. Like okay. I literally okay. am just like that goofy white guy who's like, give me like I, I put on my like Tilly safari hat. I'm like, let's go to North yeah. Korea. Like just completely <laughs> yeah. unaware, okay. right? And so, okay. um, in the distance, uh, this like older sort of Soviet-looking military jeep comes toward us, and it's now full of North Korean soldiers. And I'm like, holy crap, North Korean soldiers! Uh, like North Koreans, actual North Koreans. And so uh, some of them get off that jeep and they come into our into our bus fully armed, uh, and, and they're sitting there amongst us. And so uh, they 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 keep driving. We get into North Korea, and and the first thing we gotta do is register. So they take our passports away from us, and they tell us that we're not gonna what? get them back until we cross back into South Korea once the trip is over. So obviously red flag, uh, yeah, right off the get go. And then there's all these rules. So they basically lay out what we're gonna do. And let me contextualize this too. This is just a day trip. I'm not there for like a month. I'm there just for right. like 12 hours. Yeah. And so uh, they kind of lay out the the day. They're like, you're gonna go to a temple, a school, and, and some waterfall. Uh, and when you go there, make sure that you only take pictures of the of the sites and nothing else. So don't mm. like at the school, don't turn around and take a picture of the city. Only take pictures of the school. Only talk to the folks on your trip. Do not talk to any other North Koreans. Mm. And and when we get to these sites, also there's there's rules on what we uh, where we can go and where we can't. So they would say, for example, that tree over there. Yeah. Don't walk past that tree or that that post over there. That that post that we're pointing to. Don't walk past that post. And so of course, I never walk past that post. But a couple months after my tour was over, um, a South Korean woman who's on that same tour walked past one of those trees or posts, and uh, North Korean soldiers shot her. Uh, I believe in the back of the head and killed her. And so those tours actually um, totally stopped. And so all these bizarre things are happening. I'm having conversations with folks. I'm like, I'm like, how are you today? And they'd be like, North Korea is the greatest country in the world. And I'm like, that's a very bizarre way to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels unnatural. And then like we, they, when we went and had lunch, they would serve us honestly, the biggest meals I've ever had. It was like 10,000 plates of food just for myself. And so... I got back to South Korea after that trip was over, um, feeling very disappointed actually, um, and feeling very confused. I was like, mm. where was I? That felt very unnatural. It felt very bizarre. Actually, I should also say when we crossed the border, customs agents went through our cameras, all of us, like 12 buses of people, and went through every single photo one by one to make sure that we weren't taking photos of things we shouldn't be able, uh, shouldn't be taking photos mm. of, and then they would give us our passports back. So. I'm back in South Korea now, back home, and I hop onto Google and uh, I, I typed in something like, what is North Korea or what the hell is North Korea? Um, yeah. And it, it sent me down, honestly, like a life-changing rabbit hole. Um, I learned uh, that this was a country where over a million people uh, starved to death from a famine uh, in the 90s. I learned that uh, it was illegal and impossible to leave the country. You needed a visa to travel from one city to the next. So if I want to go from Toronto to Guelph, you, you need a visa. Um, there's no access to the internet. It's impossible to make an international phone call. And at the time, if you commit a crime uh, or even a perceived crime, not only do you get sent to a concentration camp, um, but so do three generations of your family. So, so, wow. so to... To really put that in perspective, you and I can be sitting here and my Uncle Haim could be, you know, at home 
mm-hmm. hungry and he can say something like i blame the government for my hunger and mm-hmm. someone can overhear that uh come and, and detain him and then literally pull into this house and pull me out of this interview and, and throw mm-hmm. me into a concentration camp and so um having grown up jewish having had uh holocaust uh survivors in our family sure. um obviously this shocked me um the, the fact that concentration camps in general still existed uh, mm-hmm. shocked me. And the fact that at that time there were an estimated 200,000 North Koreans inside of them uh, really shocked me. And so I became obsessed with North Korea. Um, th- that sort of passion and that very personal passion, let's say, um, really fed into this obsession. So I started reading every book I could on North Korea, watching every film. And then eventually I started... Um, working with North Korean refugees. So I ended up going back to school. I got a degree in international development, a postgrad degree. Mm. Um, and eventually I started working with North Korean refugees. So I was helping with resettlement in South Korea um, and here uh, in Toronto, uh, volunteering with an organization called Han Voice. Um, when, you were, when you were first sort of reading up on things and you were learning about these sort of atrocities and tragedies, was there a part of you that just didn't want to believe it? And did you feel like you just, was just like, this is, this can't be real and like you just needed to validate this another way like i would assume that when you started working with those refugees like that's when things maybe became came to life perhaps yeah i it's a good question i've never really thought about that but processing it now um i think it was very real actually everything that i was okay. reading was very real it was unbelievable not in a literal sense just unbelievable in a how is this allowed to be real sure kind yeah. of sense and i think what had happened was I became so passionate and so driven. It's like that camping analogy. Like if I go camping once, I, I gotta be the camping master. Mm. Um, it sort of became the same thing with North Korea. And so I became obsessed with wanting other people uh, to become aw- as aware as I was. And what I was finding was, this is around now 2009, 10, 11, people just didn't know. I mean, I think we know now a little bit more mm. about North Korea on a human rights level, but at that time, we didn't know. We just knew that this was a place where little crazy Kim Jong-il is firing rockets and they have missiles and they're building a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. But nobody really knew, as far as I know, or as I, I can remember, that there were all these atrocities. And so it kind of like became my mission in a way to get other people uh, to care as much as I did, I think. And where I struggle the most surprisingly, was with my own family. Um, Mm. People who I thought would really get it, uh, having, of course, you know, gone through Mm -hmm. experiences that were kind of the same. And we're not talking, the Jewish experience of the Holocaust, we're not talking about biblical times. We're talking about there's still people in our family who have those lived memories, right? Um, For this not to resonate with them really bothered me. Um, it really, really bothered me. And like no level of success in my work could get through to them. So, so in 2012, I actually got to go to the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva uh, mm. and speak there um, about some of the things that we were learning. And my family was interested more in like the prestige maybe of, wow, sure. glad's going to the UN, but not so much in um, what I was actually uh, there Talking to talk about, about yeah. you know? And so nothing got through to them absolutely nothing and then uh one day i was at my mom's house and i put on a a documentary about north korea and we sat down and we watched it together and she just broke down into tears she Mm. she the film demolished her and um 
it was in that moment that she actually became very concerned uh, and aware of what was happening in North Korea. And, and she also now had this hunger to learn more. And it was in that moment that I realized, wow, film, um, or, or let's just say art in general, because film is, is a type of art, um, was able to do the one thing that nothing else could, and that was breakthrough uh, to my mom. And I kind of like stumbled across this superpower that the arts have and uh, being able to connect people to really important, urgent stories, um, which is kind of the seed, not kind of, it is the, it's the seed that, that started the work that I do today. The power of storytelling, right? Like they always say, great leaders are just good storytellers and there's just something that they're able to do and connect with people at a, in, in many different levels. And so it's interesting that, you know, that story really kind of got to your mom. What was the first sort of story that, that you started to work on then? Like the story that you started telling? There's a guy in North Korea, uh, from North Korea named uh, Shin Dong-hyuk. He, uh, he's the only known person um, to have ever escaped from a maximum security concentration camp in North Korea. Elements of his story are, are um, a little bit blurry, uh, let's say, but what we do know is that he was born in a North Korean concentration camp to two mm. prisoners. Um, he didn't know that there was a rest of the world He's also not unique. Wow. There's there's hundreds of thousands like Shin Dong-hyuk. Um, he thought that the whole world consisted uh, of prisoners and guards, and he was a prisoner. He thought that on the other side of the fence was just another set of uh, prisons. And uh, from a very young age, he was indoctrinated um, to say, if you hear of anyone wanting to escape this camp, death. If you hear of this mm -hmm. and you don't uh, tell us, death. If you do this, death. Death, 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 death. And so one day he's at his his house uh, in, in this camp um, with his mom and his brother. And he overhears his mom and brother talking about wanting to escape. And so he, uh, he goes and tells uh, the guards uh, about this plan because he's been indoctrinated to do it. And so sure, the next yeah. day, they drag out his... Uh, his mom and dad, or sorry, his mom and brother, and, and they execute both in front of everybody in this camp. And so they then take him and they torture him. They end up cutting, later on, they cut off one of his fingers. They literally like rotisserie. Even after him. That, him telling them about this plan, they still prosecuted him. Yes, because maybe he had more, maybe he was part of this plan, maybe wow. he felt guilty and that's why he came clean. And so uh, they tortured him. And uh, later on in this camp, now he's in his 20s, he meets this other man who actually was from outside the camp, who, who lived in North Korea and was thrown into this camp. And so uh, this man starts telling Shin about life in North Korea. And he starts describing things like chicken and beef and pork. And, and for Shin, the only meat he'd ever had in his life were rats that he would catch. And so he started to define freedom uh, by one day having this ability to try uh, beef, chicken, or pork. And so mm. he became obsessed. And so one day, they're standing by the fence. Uh, the older man says, now is our opportunity, let's run. And so they run for the fence. Uh, the old man trips and falls, uh, electrocutes himself, dies uh, on the fence, but it creates an opening, which Shin then mm. crawls through. He escapes, breaks into a farm, finds an old North Korean uh, military uniform, throws it on. Mm. 
And now for the first time in his life, at the age of 20, in his early 20s, he's now uh, outside of this camp. And so he eventually ends up escaping North Korea into China, makes his way into South Korea. Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, um, 20 years of trauma and having to unlearn things and having to start over um, makes him literally, as far as we know, a one-of-a-kind human being. And so I would, I would often share that story um, just because of the uniqueness of it and also the, the gravity of, of what that man uh, had to go through. Where, where is he now? He lives uh, in, in Colorado, actually. He ended up marrying okay. um, an American, uh, South Korean American woman, uh, and he's, he's living happily um, in, in Colorado. Amazing. And like my understanding is sort of China is like the only sort of known way out, I guess, out of North Korea. Is that right? Yeah, there's 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 I would say maybe three ways. One is to run across the DMZ, which uh, is is basically Russian roulette. Uh, yeah. But imagine the, the, the chamber of the gun had 99 bullets uh, or 199 of them were filled with bullets. That's yeah. that you can. Uh, try to take a boat and, and cross the river and make it into South Korea, but that's also incredibly dangerous. The only realistic way uh, and the way that most people do it, um, like you said, is, is through China. So they'll cross a river, uh, one of uh, several rivers between uh, North Korea and China. Um, and then if they make it into China, um, they then have to escape uh, out of China. So China has a, an agreement with North Korea uh, where they repatriate uh, North Korean defectors mm. and send them back. And so it, when, once they get sent back, they get tortured and murdered and, and killed yeah, immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when they get into China, they have to um, navigate their way out of China. And so, the, and, and as, as you know, China's huge. Uh, trying to navigate through a country where you don't know the language, you're... Mm -hmm. Also living in a country that's like stuck in the 70s and trying to understand how things like the internet work or mobile banking or, or telecommunications is, is very tough. And so it's like a modern day underground railroad where uh, Christian missionaries, uh, different human rights advocates, different N NPOs, NGOs um, try to funnel these North Koreans out of China and into places like Thailand, Vietnam. Mongolia used to be one of those, and then once they're there, they have to claim uh, refugee asylum, mm -hmm. uh, and then usually they end up getting resettled. Uh, most of them in South Korea or North, uh, uh, United States. Some end up making yep. it here to Canada. Yeah, yeah. Is do you know if China still has that repatriation agreement with North Korea? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. And uh, do, is there pressure for for China to kind of? like not have that agreement anymore? Do you know if the international world is pressuring them or at all? Yeah, I mean, they've been condemning them forever, but um, because it completely goes against refugee law, uh, they're, they're, they're not safe in North Korea. And by law, uh, the Chinese government has to provide a safe place for them to be. Um, mm. But it hasn't really worked. Uh, there's tons of, I mean, we could go into this for hours, but it's in, it's in China's best interest that North Korea remain there. Uh, that they that they stay mm -hmm. happy. Mm -hmm. uh, if North Korea was to disappear, South Korea slash the Americans would be right up on their door doorstep. Mm -hmm. And so um, they've been propping up the the North Korean government for since the collapse of the USSR. It's, it's what an what an incredible story. I I didn't know about that at all. I mean, I've heard some bits of of North Koreans escaping and and but not something like that ever. So. Uh, 
yeah, it's I don't it's hard it's hard to even kind of process and think about how to move forward right now. Um, you know, I I I, I do want to I, I want to get back to though something about you, in that you're talking a little bit that sort of obsessiveness, right? And that sort of you know you said that you'd uh, if you had to go into film, you just get all this film equipment or camping, you just. Where is that? Is that sort of just true in general? Like you have this sort of a, a obsession or obsessiveness that you just need to kind of just keep going on something and churn or, and where does that come from? Great question. Um, that I've actually never been asked before. Uh, but I've thankfully had uh, a bit of time, uh, to process and some therapy as well. So, uh, I think it comes from two places. Uh, and I think it's all family. Um, the first would be my mom. Um, I'm not sure how much y you remember, but when, when we were, when I was young, um, it was right around the time that we were friends, uh, my dad, uh, left, mm. um, you know, we grew up just for context. Like we, I was born in Israel, immigrated to Canada with my, with my mom, uh, and dad when I was a year and a half old. And my sister, uh, was born here in Toronto, uh, in North York, uh, shortly after we arrived. And, and later on, the rest of my family on my mom's side immigrated here to, to Canada to live with us. So we mm -hmm. all were in this house. It was, it was a huge, it was like the Brady, the Israeli Brady Bunch. It was like my grandpa, <laughs> my grandma, my uncle, me, my sister, my mom and dad. And so, um, when we were living, uh, on a street called Greenbush, uh, up in North York, um, my dad's dad, uh, got really sick. And so he, he went to Israel to be with his father and he was originally supposed to be gone for 10 days. Um, and he kept extending 10 days became another 10 days. It became another 10 days. And, um, basically he just didn't come back. And so what, what ended up happening was, uh, in, while he was away, my mom was getting these calls from the bank being like, your mortgage payments aren't being made. Uh, and there's no money in the bank to, to make them. And, and my mm. dad was the one that was doing all the banking. Uh, he, he took care of all the finances. He was the one that worked. My mom couldn't even really speak English. Like she was the, the stay at home mom. And so long story short, uh, he, he had committed fraud and he, he robbed our whole family and he took everything oh. like life savings of my grandma, my, my uncle, my grandpa, uh, everything to the tune of like 500 grand and then disappeared. And so, uh, we lost that house. Um, we started bouncing around, uh, eventually we moved to mm -hmm. a, a different part of uh, North York. Um, and then, uh, my mom had to kind of pick up the pieces. And so we, we, we lived in a ton of different homes. Actually, when that even happened, like we were briefly homeless, like we had nowhere to go. And so my mom had a friend who owned a hotel or a motel and we actually like mm -hmm. lived in this motel for like a month, like, and still went to school. And how um, old were you, sir, at this time? I would have been eight, eight or nine years old. Okay. And so, um, my mom, picked up the pieces. And so she went out and, and got educated. She, she got, she learned how to speak English, got her real estate license, uh, and really pushed, pushed, push, 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 and became looking back. Um, I mean, growing up, I resented a lot of it cause I, I felt like I never got to see my mom, but she, she became obsessed with keeping the family, uh, afloat and above water. And we didn't grow up with very much. Um, compared to a lot of other kids, like we didn't get to go to summer camp and all that stuff, like, like a lot of other kids used to. Um, but we never felt like we were lacking anything. Uh, we never felt like we were missing anything and life still felt normal despite, uh, the sort of rocky situation we were in. So part of that has to do with my mom. I think this like, uh, 
like giving it my all with everything. I, I like I take no task lightly. Um, if I'm gardening, I'm now a master gardener. Like even today, <laughs> I, I I planted like ten million different things. Um, and the other piece of it, and and this is like through the therapy piece, I think actually comes through my dad. Um, and so I didn't grow up uh, with a father figure really in my life. I had my uncle sort of there, my grandpa yep. like was yep. there as well, but I was entirely raised by my mom and my grandma. And um, I think uh, in a roundabout way, it's it's like my way of proving uh, that I can do something. Um, it's my way of, of of proving that I can do something on my own. Uh, and a way of, of kind of showing the world that I, I, despite the fact that I was lacking that figure in my life, uh, let's say, um, I'll still be okay if I work hard enough or if I give him my all. And so I think, you know, it, it lends itself to many different things. Uh, if I pick up photography, I want to become the best photographer. If I mm-hmm. pick up camping, I want to become a really good camper. Um, but also I think it, uh, it also makes me prone to burning out. It makes me prone to sometimes not being always so balanced because mm. uh, it, it's very hard for me to be idle. Uh, a lot of times I, I need to be doing. And so there's the the pros and cons, I think, to that kind of way of being. Do you still feel like you're proving something to your dad? No, I don't think so anymore. Um, no, uh, I, I wouldn't say so. Like I'm... I think for a long time I was. Uh, I think growing up, like there was uh, resentment and anger in me, and 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 really trying to to go one way uh, versus another to prove that I was able to be uh, who I'm who I'm supposed to be. Um, but I don't think anymore. Um, I, I now like more cherish uh, these like traits uh, that I have, and and maybe it's a matter of repurposing my relationship to the world and and how I've acquired certain memories or skills. Uh, but I, I tend to think more of the positive that like I got this from from my mom who's a fighter rather than mm. from like my dad who who made mistakes uh, in life. You know, you told me, you just told me a few things that I had no idea about and it kind of re, it reframes my perspective about you and your family in some ways. Cause like I said, I was used to getting the big Kit Kat bars, right? And I always saw actually the, the wealthier side of your family, right? And I always thought that, man, these guys, they're, this is a rich family, right? I had mm. no idea, man. I had no idea about, about the past. So, you know, I don't even know if I should say thank you for sharing that, but it just, it just kind of changes the way, you know, just appreciate who you are, right? And now I look at back at that, uh, like that that boy who, you know, was my friend at that age and just kind of just further appreciate him, right? Because um, I just thought you had it, you had it all, right? And, uh, and, and, but you, but you, it's not like you ever had an arrogance about you. Like it, I get turned off by people that way. And, and so there was never that, but it just, it was just like, okay, he's got it. Right. Like, and I, and I always just like, yeah, just viewed you a little bit, a little bit differently, but not from a place of like jealousy or anything. Just like, oh, he's got, he's got a lot of it. Right. So. Yeah. Good love, man. Thank you. Um, that's, that's really kind of you to say. It, it's really, it's interesting to, to be able to unpack all of this because this is like mountains of, of dirt sometimes that sits on top of memories that you're not, 
scraping away and and and, mm. and and being able to have you here who's like tuning into some of those similar memories like even talking about being famous and you being like i remember that and right now i'm processing that and i'm saying that probably came from from the dad thing that i just talked about mm. and and needing to prove that i can be like bigger than life in some ridiculous way um but that i think that image you saw with the kit kat and uh and all of that uh it comes from two things first is um like i said earlier despite the fact that we didn't have we ne were never made to feel like we didn't have uh mm -hmm. and so like the kit kats were there but like the trips uh, going anywhere were not really there uh, like there were those things that were lacking in life, like the big vacations or like buying clothes mm -hmm. or all that kind of stuff. Like it wasn't necessarily always there. The second thing is, and this comes from my grandma. So, uh, another thing you may not have known, um, cause I don't think eight year olds talk about this, but, <laughs> um, and I, I, I learned, you know, not too long ago about this as well, but when my grandma was, uh, was three years old. Um, she too is the youngest of, of six siblings in total. She grew up in Romania and her dad had owned this factory and my grandma was born in 37. So this would have been in 1940. Um, Nazis came, uh, to her home, uh, because they were wealthy. Her dad was a factory owner. Uh, they rummaged through the house. They stole and broke uh, a bunch of stuff. And then they uh, took my, my grandma's dad, my great granddad, and in the backyard in front of the kids, shot him in the head and killed him. Mm. Uh, and then they shot my grandma's uh, mom, my great grandma, and she, she thankfully survived. But now she was in a position where she was poor. She was also Jewish in a place that was terrifying to be Jewish and uh, couldn't take care of the kids. And so my grandma was put into an orphanage uh, where she grew up from the age of three all the way to 18. And she had a very tough life. Uh, listening to her speak about how she grew up is heartbreaking. Like had one pair of socks for a whole year. Uh, f food was like a slice of toast and butter, uh, mm. and maybe a soup. Uh, and that was it for the whole day. And so that Kit Kat and that, like, if you ever go to my mom's house, the fridge is exploding. There's more food than anyone can possibly, literally more food than anyone's possibly eating. Uh, it's their way, I think, of coping with sure. this intergenerational trauma uh, that's sort of been handed down from from grandma to mom uh, to me, and so that Kit Kat is is a, is is awesome because a full Kit Kat when you're eight years old is like a hundred dollar bill, like we said. Totally. But it's also a representation of like we're good, like we're over that part. We did it. Yep. Yeah. Kit Kat man is getting some endorsements right now as a symbol <laughs> of like <laughs> that you made it in life. Like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding oh man they gotta pay me um yeah oh, there's so much there to talk about i, I want to talk about though um going back to the the stories that you're now starting to tell about um people who are escaping north korea people who are experiencing um human rights issues and violations and their stories and now you 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 start an organization like crazy like start a charity in an organization called jaw you and, and that my understanding is means freedom right mm -hmm. like like tell me more about sort of the process of 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 creating that because that's yeah. scary right like i just think any sort of 
anyone who has that sort of entrepreneurial spirit and actually does something, oh God, you just, people like that just deserve a ton of praise and just to kind of take those risks that a lot of people don't want to take. So congratulations on that. But just to walk, walk me through that process of just establishing that organization and then taking those next steps. And cause there's so much success that has kind of come from that too. Yeah. Happy, um, accidental success. I would say, uh, my intention was never to, to start this charity. I'm don't, don't get me wrong. I'm happy. I did. I'm, I'm blessed every day to be doing the work that I'm doing, but it was never my intention to do this. And so going back to that story with my mom, uh, and that the impact that that film had uh, on her, that North Korean film I showed, I thought, wow, what would happen if I could, um, replicate this experience and, uh, put a bunch of people in a room together and, and try to do this again. Because again, like I was really driven to, to raise awareness of North Korea. I, I, I became very obsessed with getting other people to care as much as I did. And so some friends and I came together and we, we created something called NKHRFF, uh, which is two things. One, it's a terrible name, which needs like it could buy a vowel for sure. Uh, the second thing is it stood for the North Korean Human Rights Film Festival. And so um, we did that in 2012. It was a three-day event. We screened uh, a bunch of documentary uh, at U of T. Um, we had some North Korean refugees get involved in Q&As, same with some directors. And mm -hmm. it was um, quite successful. Like, we never thought we would... We thought it would be a one-time thing. Um, someone from the Toronto International Film Festival ended up attending, and then they asked us if we would be open to doing it again the following year, but in their building at the Tefka wow. Lightbox. And so, of course, we said yes. And so the next year we did it again, um, and again it focused on North Korea. Um, but then we started to think we've got this really big, not big, I mean, it's, it's not a huge festival, but we've got this platform um, that's really bringing people out. And so why not open up the space uh, to talk about other stories as well and not just talk about North Korea? And that was happening for two reasons. One, we were getting actually approached by other people who were asking us to share their stories and we couldn't. And the second is that we were running out of film. As mm. you can imagine, the North Korean human rights film genre, it's not like Hollywood's pumping out sure. uh, dozens of these each year. So seeing the writing on the wall and, and seeing that if this is something we want to continue to do, we, we had to open it up. And so in 2014, we rebranded it. We called it Jayu. Um, Jayu means, uh, as you said, freedom in the Korean language. It was our way of sort of paying honor to the roots of the organization. And the North Korean Human Rights Film Festival uh, became rebranded as the Human Rights Film Festival. Mm -hmm. So Jayu is the name of the charity, uh, what it is today. It is a, um, the, the mission of the organization is to share human rights stories through the arts. Uh, we do that, obviously, through our Human Rights Film Festival that we do uh, now each year in December, uh, which is International Human Rights Month. The festival is now a 10-day festival, so not three, it's 10 days long. Mm. Um, and I'll get more into the festival in a sec, but we do a bunch of other stuff as well. We have a podcast called The Hum, where we interview yep. people with really unique stories. We've had folks like North Korean refugees, people who've been wrongfully incarcerated, former child soldiers, people who've experienced uh, domestic violence, survivors of, of the 60s scoop, and all sorts of just really compelling, strong individuals. Um, and then the thing we're probably most well known for um, is something called the I Am program, which is a uh, free uh, arts and social justice mentorship program that we offer to uh, over 
on average, over 200 uh, equity-seeking youth from across the GTA. Um, and what I mean by equity-seeking youth, it could, it could be youth who identify as black, indigenous, or racialized. They may be a part of the LGBTQ plus community. They may live with a disability. Um, mm. Any number of things that might make them underserved uh, or, or, or maybe, I hate using this word, but marginalized. Um, mm. We say equity-seeking. And so... Uh, we, we, we teach youth how to use, there's different cohorts of the program. We teach youth how to use cameras, for example, in the photography program or poetry in the poetry program as tools to share human rights stories. And it leads to a bunch of different things like exhibition opportunities, um, employment opportunities. We, we connect youth uh, who graduate from the program with actual paid employment opportunities. So we have young kids as young as 14 who now know how to use uh, cameras. We, we connect them, for example, with uh, Luminato so Luminato has yep. their big festival, and they'll hire our youth to actually come and be the photographer uh, for their events. So youth are learning to That's show up cool. to their shifts on time, learning to invoice for their work. And even last year through the pandemic, we managed to connect 97, I think, youth uh, to paid employment, which is uh, obviously really important when employment in general uh, became super precarious. And so um, it's this big, crazy organization now that uh, works year-round. Um, we have eight or, or nine, I can't remember, full-time staff, um, which is also wild to think about because only like three years ago, we were we were still volunteer-based, three or four years ago, not earning any income from this work. Um, and now it's a job for all of us. So uh, our 10th annual Human Rights Film Festival is coming up in December. So it's, it's now 10 years oh, wow. since that incident, not incident, since that situation with my mom, um, that moment. Congratulations. That's... That's incredible, and, and and I'll definitely link uh, uh, your your site to on the on the show notes and all that. Uh, but that's that's just I don't even know what to say. That's just an incredible amount of work. And and how are you like with the stories that you're hearing? You know, I was listening to uh, I was listening to Joe Rogan the other day. He was talking to Dave Chappelle, and uh, him and him and Dave Chappelle were talking about uh, how Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan calls all these fights, and he was saying how. He's just kind of, if he sees somebody bleed now or somebody gets hurt, he kind of just desensitized to it uh, because he's seen, he's called thousands of fights. And this is not to be equivalent to that, but I'm just, you know, you've heard a lot of stories. You've heard a lot of tragedies. Like, how do you still um, maintain a level of empathy and compassion when you've heard such diverse stories? Like, it started with North Korea, but, like, I've listened to several of your, your hum podcasts and and you know hearing these stories it's got to has it changed you has it has it has it um altered the way you kind of see these stories or listen to these stories now um it has uh for sure um but strangely it also hasn't i'm i'm a super sensitive person um like i, I feel like I, I i tune in sometimes too heavily into how other people may be feeling uh and a lot of times i'll, I'll put my own emotions and well-being aside to accommodate mm. other people. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why, why I'm saying that uh, in a second, but uh, it has changed me in, in one way. Um, every year, for example, with the Human Rights Film Festival, we, we get like five, 500 films uh, submitted, which, which have to be reviewed. And so uh, each year, and as you can imagine, it's not... We're not Did talking... Say 500? 500, yeah, okay. uh, films each year. And then we end up usually screening about 20 to 25 of them. Um, mm. And so 
we're not talking films that's, that are starring like uh, Seth Rogen and, and Adam Sandler. These mm. are tough films. Um, mm. I don't want to say desensitized, but when I'm watching these films, a lot of times, um, I'm, 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 I'm watching for two things, obviously the story, uh, and, and, uh, what it's trying to convey. And then also I'm, I'm watching it as, as a piece of art as well. And, and trying to think like, will this connect with an audience? Will this, uh, resonate with folks? And it's not just me. We have a whole programming team, um, of, of 10 to 12 of us on any given year who are watching it. So when I'm watching a film to program, I can actually step outside of myself and, and park my emotions and just watch mm -hmm. it for what it is as, as a body of work. But when I'm engaging with people in real life, um, for example, if I'm doing like a hum interview and I'm in person with someone, um, or if I'm like going up uh, a couple years ago, we went up to a remote flying community uh, up in northern Ontario called Wapakika mm. uh, that recently declared a state of emergency because youth were uh, committing suicide at an alarming rate. Even one committing suicide is an alarming rate, but many were. And being in that community uh, and working with those youth for, for just like four days uh, and trying to get them to express their stories uh, through photography um, was really hard, really, really hard on me. I came back home and I was a mess. I was a mess for, for like a solid two months. Um, mm -hmm. It's also February, it's cold. I feel like sometimes I deal with like seasonal uh, depression maybe because it's yeah. it's so cold and for so long but I remember really struggling with that and um, my wife really helps me in moments like that helping me process I'm very blessed to have a great community of people around me um, David Vela is is one of my bestest friends who's also the chair of my board he is a sounding board for everything um, I'm very fortunate to have that community around me um, and, and when I say I'm like overly sensitive, that point relates to this. Uh, like if I'm in person with someone or if I'm engaging with someone, um, I have a, sometimes I have a very hard time separating. And I think film, at least, there's a wall there. I don't know who made it sometimes. And even if I did, I'm not sitting in the room with them. I'm mm. able to see the character behind a screen. And I guess for my own mental safety, um, I have to sort of put that wall up. Yeah. Do you, is it, I'm, I'm sure it must be hard though to sort of, you say, you know, reject almost 480 films, right? Like that's, that's probably a hard process. And, and so what, what would be the things like, I, I'm assuming you're looking for like diversity of stories too. Like what goes into the sort of determining the programming of those 20 films? Yeah. So yeah, you hit it on the nose there. Like um, diversity of stories is important. Um, you sometimes end up having these really weird discussions where maybe three films talk about uh, HIV in, in Kenya mm. and, and, and you have to pick one. So now you're all of a sudden having this discussion with 11 other programmers about what, what's the best HIV in Kenya film we have, uh, which is not a discussion <laughs> <laughs> you ever imagine having. Um, but we're also, uh, you're also watching for relevance. Um, is this new? Is this, um, cause obviously human rights issues and politics change rapidly. So you sure. want to make sure that you're screening something that's relevant. Um, we, we also question like, what is the ability of this film to lend itself to a good conversation? So every mm -hmm. film is always followed up with, with a Q and a where the audience can engage, uh, and decompress a little bit more. Uh, and then of course, artistic quality matters. Um, mm -hmm. you know, when, when you're, trying to narrow down four or 500 films to 20, um, you have to make some tough decisions, but it has to be, um, entertaining is not the right word, but it needs to be able to capture uh, the attention of the viewer. 
uh, because at the end of the day, what we are trying to do is share human rights stories through the arts. And, and mm. really, we have to do that through compelling, creative um, art forms. We, we don't want to bore an audience. Um, we don't want to turn an audience away. We want them to, to walk alongside us from the start of that film to the end and hopefully feel something, whether it's anger or sadness or happiness, but we want them to feel something. We don't want them to feel bored. Sure. Um, so artistic uh, quality also um, definitely matters. What's the what's the sort of a, a next step for Jayu? Like, did you, have you guys thought about not only sharing this work through the arts, but like, is it is it advocacy? Is it is it you know advocating certain government organizations or the business community or what? Yeah, where does it go? That's a uh, great question. I think uh, for us, we ha we had this to what end debate uh, a couple mm. years ago. Like, to, to what end do we exist? And and for us, it's it's really uh, into the awareness piece. Mm -hmm. um, there are a ton of really great uh, organizations in the city who are doing remarkable work to solve many of the issues that our films uh, talk about. But I think what we're kind of going for, whether it's through our IM program or our podcast or the film festival, is to sort of recreate that same experience uh, I had with my mom, which is sure. to just get somebody to... to, to... Uh, this was actually the hashtag for our film festival last year was to give a shit. Um, mm. it's to get people to care. And we, we actually partner up with a ton of community partners in the city. So if we're, for example, screening a film on wrongful incarceration, the community partner for that screening will be the John Howard Society, which works with um, wrongfully incarcerated men uh, or, or folks who are just coming out of the criminal justice system. And so um, a really good way to, to show the impact of that is a couple years ago when we screened a film about wrongful incarceration, John Howard Society had a table in the boot, uh, in the lobby of the cinema and like 60 people signed up to volunteer for that organization immediately after. So like to me, impact is a behavioral change. If you're going to go mm -hmm. add your name uh, onto a piece of paper to, to do something, then then that's awesome. Like we've done something right. And there are organizations that are way more equipped to, to handle the advocacy piece and the, um, the lobbying piece for, for us. It's, it's more about, um, sharing those stories, creating a, a interactive creative space to, to share these stories, um, with the world. Very cool. But yes, no, go so, ahead. Uh, you go ahead. No, I want you to go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna talk about your four-day work week going on at Jiu. Uh, yes. But yes. But uh, if you had wanted to finish your thought, please go yeah, ahead. Yeah, because I'm not sure I answered. So you, you were saying what's next? Um, the pandemic opened up a ton of possibilities for us. So um, last year, as soon as the pandemic hit, we pivoted uh, immediately and started offering all of our programming virtually. So. Um, the virtual space is something that we're definitely going into. So our youth programming now is offered entirely virtual uh, until it's mm. safe to go back in person. But it's, it's allowed us to, st to start connecting with communities outside of the GTA. We're now offering programming to youth in northern Ontario. Uh, the idea is to start engaging with youth all across this province and then uh, across Canada. Um, and we've also started doing these like free monthly screenings called Last Tuesdays. So on the last Tuesday of every month, we present this free virtual um, presentation. And so... A great way to show just the impact of, of virtual programming is uh, our first ever one last year in March. Again, we screened a film about a wrongfully incarcerated person, and we had 984 people attend the live Q&A after, which mm. is the largest audience like we've literally ever had. Our cinemas don't even hold um, mm. that many people. And so um, 
there's this really great opportunity right now to engage with audiences, not just from across the province or Canada, but across the world. And so it's it's trying to understand how how can we be leaders in that space and how can we connect mm-hmm. more people um, virtually to compelling stories? Yeah, the, I mean, COVID's created a whole bunch of, it's, it feels like it's almost kind of gone, like there's this duality of like, it's kind of gone one way, which is just to shit, but it's also kind of created a bunch of opportunities and you kind of, you're expressing one because yeah, the reach that you would have now virtually, as you described, is seems like it far surpasses or much larger than, than what you would have had in person. Mm-hmm. No, it's absolutely true. And it, I mean, it has gone to shit uh, in, a, in a ton of ways as well. You're absolutely right. Um, one, one of the ways I, I can, and I'm taking a bit of a hard right turn here, um, is uh, just, just in last week. So last week I got news that one of the, one of the youth from our IM uh, program who I was very close to, um, I got word last week that he passed away from a, a drug overdose. And um, his name was George. He was one of the most wonderful kids in the world, um, but he struggled with homelessness. He struggled with mm-hmm. um, mental health and addiction. And numerous times uh, throughout the pandemic, he had reached out to me, um, you know, to hang out and trying to, you know, protect the health of me, uh, myself and my wife, but mm-hmm. also trying to be a good role model to him. Um, I kept saying no, uh, but I kept saying, let's hang out virtually. Let's do things virtually. And, sure. and while we're, you know, bigging up the virtual world and all the opportunities. He, he didn't want that. He, he needed, A, he didn't want it because I don't think he could access the virtual space. He was literally lacking mm, the, the technology uh, in there. Yeah. Yeah, to do that. And so what he really craved in life was in person, or in that moment, I should say, was in person um, companionship. He needed somebody to walk with him, to be with him, to, to, to spend the day with. And unfortunately, you know, when we're talking about these cracks in the system that people slip through, um, COVID made some of those cracks like sinkholes. And so um, for, for someone like George, um, from what I'm able to gather, the, the folks that were able to be those in-person, that in-person presence in his life, um, weren't necessarily the people that were maybe bringing out the best in him. And so mm-hmm. his drug addiction got worse and then eventually he fell into a place that ultimately it ended up taking taking his life but um there's pros and cons to this there's pros and cons of the virtual world um but there's also um people are isolated mental health is going um in 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 some very tough places for a lot of people and obviously um at least here in ontario which is the environment i'm familiar with there's a lot of inequity and inequality around who's getting vaccines, who gets mm-hmm. to go to work, who gets to uh, get paid sick leave. Um, and obviously you see more of these equity seeking communities who live usually sometimes in poverty or close to poverty. Those are the communities that suffer the most. And so it's never an equal formula. I, I don't think it's never a perfect no, science. No, and even, I mean, kids, right? There are a lot of kids who don't have access to online classes the same way that other kids do, right? I mean, it's at and what's that going to do for years and years of uh, lack of development? You know, it's you're absolutely right. Um, I'm sorry for your loss. Like that, that's uh, that that would uh, that would hurt anyone. So um, yeah, it it's it is it, COVID is is one of these events that's just exposing uh, you know divisions and and fractions that already existed and just further exacerbating them even more and you know there's other events you know like climate change is is doing that for people too and and all kinds of major events so yeah it's uh 
it's 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 tough um you know but again with the opportunities there are i I feel like you know we talked about the reach and we talked about i was going to talk about the four-day work week i almost feel like employers are are allowing are getting more comfortable with remote working like i would say even for myself like a silver lining has been that i've been able to see my three-year-old daughter um you know working from home i get to see her grow up and run around the yard and i cherish that right like i and i know there are a lot of families who are experiencing that um has as in that sense you know have you do you feel like you've benefited in any way from being at home and and working remotely and hundred percent. And first, I mean, what a beautiful uh, privilege, right? To, to be able to, Absolutely. to to be home and to see um, your daughter growing up. It's, it's, it's beautiful and heartwarming for real. Like a lot of parents that I speak to are sharing in that, in that joy um, that that is definitely a silver lining. We don't, we don't have a kid, my wife and I, but being able to just spend time together mm. um, has been uh, a blessing. I mean, we both work in the arts. Uh, we're both often very busy. Like I, I reflect on what the days used to look like and you're, you're waking up at like six thirty seven in the morning, no matter how early you get up, you're somehow scrambling every morning to get onto transit. You get onto this packed streetcar uh, or bus or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah. By the time you get to work, you're already in an anxious Spent state. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're done. And then and then you're interacting all day and you're getting pulled into meetings and you're getting distracted. And and then after work, there's some social function you got to go to. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get home, it's now like nine o'clock. It's it's like minus 15 degrees outside. And now you got to take the streetcar to get home. And then, and then by the time I'm home, I have nothing left to give, honestly, my wife because mm-hmm. I'm spent. And she's she's gone through a similar sort of experience mm-hmm. on her end. And so... It sort of makes me question how did we do this for so long um, because I never uh, want to go back and as long as I you know continue to work at Jayu um, we will never go back to that um, mm. we started experimenting a little bit with with uh, different ways of working um, and you touched up upon it a little bit but the four-day work week was was something we actually started to to pilot um, a couple months before the pandemic started and so the work from home thing is is a beautiful addition that we can add to it, but it was like a, not something we planned for. Uh, we mm-hmm. never planned to, to do the work from home thing until COVID hit, but um, I, I'll speak specific to the art, arts and culture sector, but this is not something that is unique to arts and culture. I think this impacts every sector. Um, we're used to overworking. Uh, we're used to being burnt out um, in the film festival world where, uh, or the non-for-profit sector in general, we're used to being underpaid uh, we're told that it's about the mission. It's not about the money, um, mm. which I find hilarious because I still have to pay rent. Like, it's, right. <laughs> I, I can't use that for my landlord. It's not about, <laughs> can I pay you in mission points? <laughs> give you a ticket care. to my film festival. Yeah. That for the rent? yeah, exactly. I'll give you a tax receipt if you donate yeah. the rent back. Um, so that way of working, at least for me, um, was really destructive. And um, I was used to burning out and I was used to um, not getting paid equitably. And uh, around 2018, around 2018 or 2019, I can't remember the year, I, I was so burnt out after having done, like I think our eighth annual Human Rights Film Festival. And I knew we needed to do something different because I couldn't keep doing this, this like 
way of working. And so I started researching mm. alternative ways of working and I came across uh, this wild idea of the four day work week. And there's, there's trials that have been happening in, in different places across the world. Microsoft Japan is one of the loudest about it. Um, but across the board, what I was finding was anywhere where they were working four days a week, they found that productivity increased, mm. work-life balance improved, mental health improved. Um, and, and across the sector, it was just a, a positive. And so I, this again goes with the like obsessed thing. I'm like, I'm going to do this and we're going to be great at it. So in, in January, 2020, we began this pilot of working four days a, a week. Um, and we just completed the, the one year pilot. And despite the fact that anxiety, um, and depression has been shown to increase, um, throughout the pandemic, there's a ton of reports, uh, that outline that, um, we actually saw mental health uh, improve at the organization. So we, we, mm. we surveyed the staff and we found that uh, while working four days a week, mental health improved dramatically. Um, the need to self-medicate drastically uh, decreased uh, from working five days a week to four days a week to deal with stress. Uh, all workers felt more productive. 100% of our employees found that they had a better work-life balance. And so what the way it works is staff work Monday to Thursday. They work from 9.30 to 3.30. Uh, but if they need to, they can work all the way to 5.30. So they work anywhere from six mm. to eight hours a day. Um, they get Fridays off and they still get paid for 40 hours a week. So despite that, we're only working 24 to 32 hours, staff continue to get paid for 40. Um, we have found that last year, our, despite the pandemic again, our revenue increased. Um, the number of uh, youth participants in our programming stayed steady. Um, mm. Our audiences grew. Um, and the staff were feeling better. So not only were we working well, but we were also feeling well when we weren't working. And so yeah. um, across the board, it was a huge improvement. And so uh, it's something that we're going to now stick with permanently. As a leader, did you feel, even though you wanted to do this, was there a part of you that was a little uncomfortable? Or did you have that trust established within your team that people weren't going to take advantage of this in a negative way? What was your, what was your feeling about that? Um, in that moment at the beginning, the only fear I had was from my, my board of directors. Um, let's just say I wasn't very forthcoming with them at the very beginning. In fact, I hid this decision to do this from them. Um, and the way we sort of did it at Jayu was in th sort of three month segments. So we said, let's see how it goes for the first three months. Mm -hmm. The staff were very aware that if this isn't working for any number of reasons, we would go back to how mm -hmm. we used to work. And so I knew I had that kind of like safety net in case it didn't mm -hmm. work. But after uh, the third month, basically right, right when the pandemic started, I started opening up to my chair about it. And of course, he's like, what? What do you mean? We're paying them to not work? And I was like, well, take a look at the revenue. Like, it's all good, right? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, and youth participation is still the same. He's like, yeah. And so he started buying into it. And he's like, keep me posted mm -hmm. on it. And by April, now that we're like a month and a half into the pandemic, and things are still growing while most uh, others in the sector, unfortunately, are struggling. Now the board started to open up to it. So I, I'm mm. very fortunate. I have a very supportive board and they're very um, uh, great about it. So I wasn't um, I wasn't really um, afraid, um, so to speak, like I, I felt comfortable. Um, I felt comfortable doing it. I had another thought here I wanted to share. Um, but it slipped me here. It'll, hopefully it'll come back. Well, I was going to ask you more about your leadership. Like what, what's, is that, do you feel like that is something that you study and are kind of obsessive about too, like in terms of how to become a better leader and 
No, not at all. And so I okay. never went to school for business or leadership. Um, I have mentors in my life who are great leaders. Uh, I'll shout some of them out. Mikey Prosserman, he founded a charity called Unity Charity, uh, which does mental health uh, through hip hop. Um, he also similar grew, uh, grew it from a, an idea to a one and a half million dollar charity. He supports me. David Vela supports me. I've got folks like Jack Kim on my board who support me. So I think I rely more on these in-person mentors in my life. Mm. Uh, another would be Dave Skeen, um, who has been uh, my biggest mentor uh, ever since I was in university. Um, but I don't, I don't study up on these books. I think the way I sort of lead, and it's, it's, it's kind of like how Jayu started, was I went through something. I know it felt good or felt right. So now let's just try it. Um, like, I guess there's no fear in trying. Um, mm. And that's something that I'm always trying to express to anyone who's listening about the four day work week, because it's been received really well. And a lot of leaders are like, I wish we could do this. And the thing is, is you can. And uh, the thing is, you can at least try, let's say sure. you can at least try. And if it doesn't work, and if you're open with your staff, and you say, like, if it doesn't work, we have to go back, then you go back, but at least you try. And so I think um, there's no fear in me trying. And a lot of it comes from personal experience. So again, like the IM program that we do, uh, the photography training program completely came out of that experience that I had with photography. It made me feel better. So, um, when we were, we were working with a shelter, we thought, well, what would it do for the youth in, in this room? And so the four day work weekend, sort of my leadership is like, I think it would feel good for me. So maybe it would feel good for them. Um, yeah. And a lot of times too, like maybe it's a fault. Uh, a lot of the ways in which I lead is, is in asking a lot of questions. And so we'll ask our staff for input constantly. Um, we're constantly checking in with them. Like uh, we used to work 10 to four and then I'm like, well, now we're working from home. So the whole idea for 10 to four was so you would miss rush hour. Like you could come to work after rush hour, but now we're working from home. So can we try nine to three? And then we went to this whole thing where we tried nine to three, we tried nine 30 to three 30, we tried 10 to four again, and all that came from the staff's input. And so, uh, I, I think good leadership is, I mean, good leadership, uh, not to toot my own horn. I think you have to listen a lot to your staff and you have to involve them in decisions. Cause if they own a piece of that thing that you're about to do, and if it fails, we can say, dude, we all failed. What can we all do next? Uh, and, and then you don't have to own it and be so afraid to make that choice all on your own. You know, uh, you're speaking music to my ears and also just want to emphasize like leadership is, is, is not that hard. It's not that complicated. You don't, like you said, you didn't have to take any courses. There are people who take leadership training and are terrible leaders, right? And it's, it's so simple. And, and a lot of the great leaders that I hear from, they always talk about just sort of walking the ship, right? Really listening to these people. You know, there is, um, there is this one leader, I forget, he's, he's an ex-military leader. Uh, he was leading the Pacific Navy fleet in, in the United States. Um, I forget, there's a specific fleet he was leading. And he was given the worst fleet in, in the U.S. Navy. And he was a high-performing um, uh, officer and given the worst fleet. And he comes, on, he comes onto this ship and he's saying, and, and everyone is just kind of fearful of him because they've had terrible military leaders in the past none of the sort of junior staff were ever sort of listened to. 
and he has this mentality of like he wants to hear from every single person. And so I'll just sort of jump to the result. He ends up walking the ship and he talks to this person who's in charge of sort of maintaining like the paint and, 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 and sort of uh, parts of the ship. And he's like, he's like, oh, is there anything that we could do to kind of save money? Because we're really bleeding money here. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, you have all the bolts around here are all, always rusted. And we paint the ship every year, which costs millions and millions of dollars. Why don't we just change the material of the bolts and some of our fixtures to stuff that doesn't rust, right? Because they're in seawater and all this stuff. That simple change saved the Navy millions and millions of dollars for having to paint their ships. And it was a simple example of just listening to people, right? And empowering them and bringing them part of the process. But I think people get stuck in their own egos and their fears about like, oh, not being the smartest person in the room and just kind of these old, you know, this old style of leadership that has been so destructive. You know, there's that former um, CEO, Jack Welsh, who uh, ran GE. He really kind of, in my opinion anyways, was sort of brought a really toxic way of leading. But I think, I think, I think we're making shifts. I think people are starting to understand really what good leadership is about. So congratulations, man. That's, it's fantastic. Again, just uh, leading with four day work week and, and paying people by five, but then you're backing it up with numbers. Like it's not just like a feeling you're, it started off with a feeling, but you're backing it up with like, Hey, I got the results to prove it. And, and hopefully that continues for you. Yeah, and we'll be putting out a report about that um, shortly so other people can learn. Uh, the, the report is, is that workplace study that we did um, to monitor uh, the impact of it, of the four-day work week. But uh, that story is, is hilarious uh, and so simple because uh, it really reminds me of the power of just asking. Um, mm-hmm. It really reminds me really quickly of the story we learned in international development where uh, you know, these white developers would go into a place like Uganda and they see this really beautiful land that is perfect for, for gardening and this community is hungry and they don't have food. And so this, this, these white development workers come in and they start planting uh, crops in this field and the crops grow and it's all of this, uh, of this great produce that will feed the community. And so one day they wake up and they come and everything is destroyed. All the crops are, are, are demolished. Everything is ruined. And uh, the, the, the development workers are like, what happened here? And the locals are like, this is where like the rhinos <laughs> pass through. They migrate through this field every year. And the development workers are like, why did you never tell us that? And they're like, because you never asked. Right. You never once asked us. And so, again, it, it's, it's like leaning on the experts who sometimes most often times actually is is not you and it's not me it's it's the person who's doing the job and um yeah anyway on the on the flip side of that though you also and it sounds like you have this at jiu but like you need to have that trusting environment so people also feed that information up right leaders can ask the questions but if people don't feel trusted and, and feel like they're in that safe environment to provide that information like you're also just not going to get the truth as well so yeah and and we felt that um i didn't i've never opened up about this but this just happened a couple uh, about a month ago it, it, trust is important and when you're working remotely of course trust is important because you can't sit there and monitor people um we just hired a, a full-time staff person who wasn't really working out very well and uh we had some suspicions that she may have still been working at her, her old workplace. And so mm-hmm. we ended up finding out 
by actually calling the number on their website <laughs> and finding out that she picked up the phone during work hours and, and, and didn't know it was us calling and actually confirmed that she was still working over there nine to five at the same time that we were paying her to work for us. And so we were literally paying her six hours a day to work for us while she was working somewhere else. And even on Fridays, when we, were li when we literally pay our staff to rest, she took complete advantage of that uh, to work somewhere else and get paid twice at the same time. So trust does play a huge role in it. And I, I speak about this often. Culture is not some culture is very fickle. The, mm -hmm. the most important thing at any organization is, is not necessarily what you do or how you do it. It's the people involved that are actually doing it. It's the community mm -hmm. that you build and the culture that you, you have together. And, um, I, I say it's fickle because it could change at any point. It can change at sure. any time. Someone can come in. We, we, in sports, you talk about that locker room cancer mm -hmm. uh, who can come mm -hmm. in and completely change the dynamic of a team. So trust uh, definitely is a huge piece of it for sure. Yeah. Uh, I just want to sort of, uh, as we get to kind of like my final few questions, the last sort of bit, maybe big question I sort of have is, uh, when you think about sort of human rights, what kind of what are the ones that sort of continue to concern you? Like what are um, you know, I think about climate change a lot and sort of what that was going to do and how, you know, it's the people who are the most vulnerable who are getting exposed and and and, and are going to be on the losing end as climate change continues to, um, you know, really destroy our planet. But what what are what are some major concerns for you? What are the things that kind of keep you up at night from a human rights perspective? Uh, today, uh, what's keeping me up at night is the conflict in Israel and Palestine, and mm. um, I don't, I mean, I, I had to unlearn a lot of what I grew up with. My family served in the Israeli military, uh, mm. they're very pro-Israel, very, um, I don't want to say anti-Palestine, I'm not going to take it that far, but it's very one-sided, and I grew up that way, and uh, thankfully I, I've been exposed to different narratives, and um, I'm, I'm very troubled by, by what I considered to be an apartheid uh, of the Palestinian people mm. in Israel. A lot, a lot of what I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from, from friends and people uh, on the ground in Israel, which doesn't necessarily match what we're hearing in the media, um, concerns me. Um, I'm very, very concerned about Palestinians uh, today and uh, the injustice that they face at the hands of, of, of Israelis. I still continue to check in uh, with North Korea. It's still, despite the fact that we don't work on it day to day, it's still probably the cause I'm most... Uh, concerned about, um, especially right now, like when it goes too quiet about North Korea for too long, that starts to worry That's me scary. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, here in, in a Canadian context, just in general, um, anti-black racism uh, mm. and uh, the continual oppression of, of Indigenous peoples um, here in Canada is something that, um, you know, we talked a lot about last year with the whole George Floyd uh, yep. murder. Um, I, I sometimes, you know, worry that it's not, uh, it's something we continually need to be working on, uh, and mm -hmm. not just when, let's say the hashtag is trending. So, uh, ensuring that equity, like real, real equity, um, exists for, uh, black indigenous racialized, uh, individuals as well as, uh, LGBTQ plus, uh, folks, folks living with disabilities, um, is always, you know, on, on the forefront of my mind as well. When you, I, I listen to some of your podcast episodes and there are several, you know, refugees that you kind of had on your, on your show, I kind of wonder what's your perspective on how they view Canada? Like, do they see Canada as a, 
as sort of a, a, a beacon or do they see it? Are they surprised by, you know, that there are inequities that, you know, us as, you know, born or those who are Canadian citizens kind of see uh, maybe more uh, so than other people. But yeah, what are, what are their views? Have you, do you, have you grabbed onto those observations at all? It's, it's case by case, I think. I mean, a lot of North Koreans that I speak to are just really thankful to live here. So a lot of times that, that comes with um, that sort of sentiment. Uh, but it really depends. Um, we, we were working with uh, a, a lesbian couple from Egypt who um, came here out of fear for their lives. Uh, they were promised a certain type of life when they got here, and they've been struggling with uh, homelessness and housing and employment ever since they got here. Uh, and so the Canada that they were told uh, they would have is not the same Canada that they mm -hmm. currently live in. And um, there are a lot of gaps and, uh, let's say, cracks, uh, or, or, as I said earlier, sinkholes that uh, make it really easy for people to slip through. So it's really a mixed bag. Um, I mean, Canada is a safer place to live, for example, for LGBTQ refugees. Um, but there still is a lot of trans uh, hatred here. There's still a lot of anti-gay hate crimes. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so my, my two kind of questions I ask everyone, the first one is if there are five people who you uh, would mm -hmm. dead or alive, who you'd want to have a meal with, who are those five people? And they could be together or they could be individually. So. Yeah, uh, you sent you you sent me this yesterday, and I, this is a tough one. Um, I've never. I'll, I'll just get into it. I'm thinking of, of having a dinner together uh, with with folks, and uh, I'm thinking of different pieces of my life. So I want to have family there. I want to have uh, a, my human rights side. I want to have a bunch of people. So I'm going to start with my grandfather. Mm -hmm. My grandfather um, passed away back in 2004. You got to meet him. He, yep. I'm sure, was one of the guys that gave you uh, your Kit Kat bars. Um, <laughs> I miss him dearly. I actually uh, wear his, his wedding band uh, as my own. Um, I want him there. Uh, I, I would love for my wife to be there just so she could meet this grandfather of mine uh, that I talk about. Uh, she'd also get mad if she wasn't invited to this epic dinner that I'm putting together. So uh, she's there uh, to, to enjoy in it as well. LeBron oh, you're making James, me look bad. You're, you're making me look bad because I didn't have my wife and my five for dinner. So. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. Um, it's all good. All good. <laughs> um, LeBron James would be there. Uh, I'm yeah. a huge basketball fan. I also really yeah. uh, admire LeBron, um, not just for his athletic skills, but he's a huge uh, advocate for a better mm. world. Um, I would have Shin Dong Hyuk there, the North Korean mm -hmm. uh, that I spoke about. I think having him and LeBron in the same room mm -hmm. uh, could do wonders for North Korea. The last is this guy, Ted Simon. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, I think in the 70s, or it's based around his experience in the 70s, called Jupiter's Travels. He uh, hopped on a motorcycle uh, in Europe, uh, rode through Europe down like uh, from Italy into Tunisia, all across Africa, hopped on a ferry into South America, South America rode up into North America, took a ferry into Australia, Malaysia, India. He basically rode his bike uh, over three or four years across the world. Cool. Uh, I have a motorcycle and I just have so uh, many questions. I also feel like if the conversation got too dark at that dinner table, he'd have some great stories to share. Nice, nice, nice. Like that. Um, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Hummus is the best food uh, in the world. 
uh, no matter what, no matter how much I tried to run away from it as a kid. Um, and despite how uh, people put themselves out into the world, despite how um, sometimes it doesn't seem like this, everyone just wants to feel loved. Everyone mm-hmm. just wants to feel some sort of belonging. So um, it's important to keep that in mind sometimes when we uh, engage with people, even when they're driving us absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Glad, my friend. This has been, uh, you know, honestly, like, it just I feel right here because this is like kind of going through, you know, back and then and then changing the way I looked at things and and your story and just I'm I'm first of all I'm incredibly proud of you just from 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 every part of me like just incredibly proud of you to see, um, you know, before I met you, to how you, things evolved to you just kind of being compelled by you know these incredible stories of people who had to go through such tragedy to take that and share that awareness with the rest of the world. It's just, it's, it's profoundly admirable and I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. So, um, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Really, really appreciate it. I hope everyone, um, you know, listens to this episode, likes it, and I'll put all of Gilad's links in our show notes. Please visit his website. Please visit Jayu. Hopefully people can have access to the films in the future and they can watch these things the last Tuesday of the, mo- last Tuesday of the month. Um, just a pleasure to really have you. So thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, going back again uh, to grade three, this was a gift for me today to be able to uh, uncover parts of our, our shared life together and, and to uh, relive some of those memories. And um, so great to see you, dude. I just, you know, I, I, as soon as the camera turned on, I got to see you on the other side here. My, my heart and, and, and smile uh, immediately opened up. So please more of, of each other uh, in our lives. <laughs> For sure, for sure. All right, take care, my friend. Take care, man. Okay, see you later. Bye.